From the dawn of Christianity, followers of Jesus have known and have experienced physical danger for their faith in Christ. A Christian woman in the early church named Perpetua faced such danger with resolve and courage. Perpetua was born in North Africa, a city of Carthage, now in Tunisia, in AD 182. She became a Christian 20 years later in AD 202. She was a single mom, was radically converted by the grace of the gospel of Jesus Christ, there caring for her little daughter in the midst of intense persecution that broke out among Christians from the Roman Empire. Christians were hunted down by the Roman authorities, interrogated, forced to renounce their faith, to cry Lord Caesar instead of crying Lord Jesus, the true Lord and King. If they did not do that, they faced death in any number of ruthless and awful ways. Well, this was Perpetua's plight, yet she refused to recant her faith. In the midst of the interrogation, the opposition, the persecution, she would not deny her Lord Jesus, who saved her from an even greater enemy, that is sin and death. She remained steadfast in her faith, refused to concede to the fierce pressure of the Roman authorities. Her immediate family pleaded with her to just say the words, just recant your faith, just say Lord Caesar instead of Lord Jesus. Save yourself so that you can care for your little daughter. Perpetua refused. She explained to her family that Jesus Christ had saved her and was everything to her as a result. And so, on a fateful day, AD 203, as a 21-year-old girl, young mom, they threw Perpetua to the lions, as was customary. This morning, I want to unpack for you the reality of physical danger for being a Christian. Now, this is going to be a little bit jarring for us in a culture that idolizes comfort and convenience. Throughout history, 2,000 years of Christian history, and the people of God before the dawn of Christianity, the Old Testament, knew what it was to face persecution, the cost of following the Lord. So I want to unpack with you the reality of danger, physical danger, for being a Christian, serving as part of the mission of God. As we continue our sermon series in the book of Acts that we've entitled Church on Mission. So let's turn to Acts chapter 21 in our Bibles. In the Bibles we've provided on your chairs, you can find Acts 21 on page 930. And if you're here today and you don't own a copy of the scripture, we'd love to give you one as a gift. Uh, in the lobby, there are three bookcases. The furthest one from the doors, the front doors, you'll find hardcover black Bibles. You can take those. You don't have to ask anybody. We love to give out Bibles. Acts chapter 21, the sermon will cover verses 1 through 36, but I'm only going to read the first portion, verses 1 through 6, and then we'll read it in chunks after that. So Acts 21, verses 1 through 6 to start us. 
Luke is the author here. He's also a traveling companion with Paul and his ministry team. Thus the word we that we'll see here. And when we had parted from them and set sail, we came by a straight course to Kos, and the next day to Rhodes, and from there to Patara. And having found a ship crossing to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. When we had come in sight of Cyprus, leaving it on the left, we sailed to Syria and landed at Tyre, for there the ship was to unload its cargo. And having sought out the disciples, we stayed there for seven days. And through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. When our days were ended, we departed and went on our journey. And they all, with wives and children, accompanied us until we were outside the city. And kneeling down on the beach, we prayed and said farewell to one another. Then we went on board the ship, and they returned home. Acts 21 emphasizes this truth. The mission of God involves risk and the potential of physical danger. The mission of God involves risk and the potential of physical danger. So we're going to cover a large section of text this morning, but we can organize it into two sections. Two sections. Danger forecasted and danger realized. Danger forecasted and danger realized. Let's take a look at the first section, danger forecasted. As Acts 21 opens, we find Paul and his ministry team departing from Miletus, this coastal city just south of Ephesus in what was then Asia Minor, what is now Western Turkey. Paul had met there with the elders of the church in Ephesus. He had poured into them through his word. Dylan preached the latter part of Acts chapter 20 a couple weeks ago. That's what we see there. After his message to these Ephesian elders, they all kneel on the ground, they pray together, and they commit Paul and his ministry team to the Lord. And then the details of where they go is picked up in chapter 21, which is what we just read Luke tells us, when we had parted from there, we set sail, we came by straight course to Kos, and the next day to Rhodes, and from there to Patara. So I have a map here that will help us. You'll notice as we work through Acts over the last several sermons, we're, we're bringing up a map because it's easy to get lost in the locational details. Paul and company are traveling in a small coastal vessel, hugging the shoreline. So you see Asia, Ephesus, Miletus. That's where Paul preached to the Ephesian elders. He gets in a little, little boat that hugs the shoreline. They go south to Kos, a little further south to Rhodes, and then east to Patara, which is that port city in Lycia. And there in Patara, they get in a bigger boat, a sturdier boat, because they have to make a 400-mile journey from Patara all the way down to Tyre. So you can envision them in a tiny little sailboat, hugging the coast, going from island to island, kind of hopping those islands, and then they get in a bigger vessel in Patara and make a longer journey, 400 miles, to Tyre. Modern-day Lebanon, Beirut. Having found a ship crossing to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. Verse 3, when we had come 
in the sight of Cyprus, leaving it on the left side, we sailed to Syria and landed at Tyre. And for there, the ship was to unload its cargo. Now, while in Tyre, we see a collection of Christians gather around Paul and his ministry team to encourage them. These Christians are there because of the stoning of Stephen back in Acts chapter 8. Remember what happened when Stephen was stoned? A great persecution broke out in the early church. An awful day, but also a strategic day because as the persecution came, Christians scattered, and as they went, they took the gospel with them. Some of those Christians that scattered went to Tyre and set up shop there, had a thriving Christian community that greets Paul as he gets off the boat. Verse 4, having sought out the disciples, we stayed there for seven days, and through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. And here we see the first forecast of danger. The first forecast of danger by these Christians in Tyre. These Christian disciples discern by the Spirit that grave danger awaits Paul in Jerusalem. And the conclusion they make from that Spirit-prompted message is, don't go, Paul. Don't go. Well, the Spirit had already communicated the same reality to Paul earlier. Acts chapter 20, verses 22 through 24, when he was preaching to those Ephesian elders in Miletus, he speaks of this reality of danger in Jerusalem. Acts 20, verses 22 through 24, Now behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not count my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course in the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Friends, it's the same spirit-prompted message. There's danger in Jerusalem, Paul. It's the same message, but with two different conclusions. The Christians entire conclude, don't go, Paul, whereas Paul concludes, I'm going. Same spirit-prompted message, there's danger there, but two different conclusions among Christians. What do we gather from this? The Holy Spirit's prompting of danger that lies ahead does not mean that an attempt should not be made. The Holy Spirit's prompting that danger lies ahead does not mean the attempt should not be made. Paul goes. He sets his face towards Jerusalem that he might faithfully witness to the gospel of Jesus Christ. He understands that physical danger is part and parcel of the mission of God. And he goes. This is the first forecast of danger. There's another forecast coming as the text unfolds. Paul and the Christian community entire pray together. They say farewell in verses 5 and 6. When our days there were ended, we departed and we went on our journey and they all with wives and children accompanied us until we were outside the city. And kneeling down on the beach, we prayed and said farewell to one another. Then we went on board the ship and they returned home. Here we see the role of Christian community in the face of difficulty. Though they may disagree, 
on their conclusion of the danger that lies ahead, they are in perfect agreement that they should pray and encourage Paul and his ministry team. They join hands. They pray. They're strengthened by their time with one another. We've seen this throughout the book of Acts. As persecution arises, Christians coalesce. Christians come together and encourage each other, pray for each other, strengthen each other. That's what Paul's doing here. Friends, we need each other in this local church to be faithful disciples of Jesus. To stay the course in the face of any and all opposition. And it's coming and more is going to come. As I prayed this morning, it's going to get worse before it gets better. That's what the scriptures say. They will hate you and deliver you over to the authorities but fear not what you will say, for the Holy Spirit will testify through you. It's going to get worse. Wars and rumors of wars. Pestilence. We know what this is like. Division among families. This is what Jesus says is going to happen. And it's our local church family strengthening each other to stay the course, to remain faithful. The role of Christian community in the face of great difficulty well, in verses 7 and following, we find the second forecast of danger. Luke says in verse 7, When we had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at Ptolemy, just south of Tyre, sailing on the Mediterranean coast. We greeted the brothers and stayed with them for one day. On the next day, we departed and came to Caesarea, and we entered the house of Philip the evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. In that coastal, Mediterranean coastal city of Caesarea, Paul and his team spend a day with Philip. We've not seen Philip since Acts chapter 8. This is the Philip who was instrumental in the conversion of the Ethiopian eunuch. This is the Philip who was instrumental in proclaiming the gospel to the Sumerians. We've not heard of him in 12 chapters, some 20 years. Philip now has four unmarried daughters who are serving in the ministry themselves. So Luke provides this detail of Philip's daughters to, to show us how much time has transpired. He has four unmarried daughters, likely in their late teens, early 20s. Philip is still faithful. He has discipled his daughters to serve Christ. The legacy that Philip is leaving is in his progeny. And it also shows the beautiful reality in the early church that women served in a patriarchal society where women were less than on the status scale, they were used in service of Christ their king. Four daughters who prophesied truths in their own local church there. Philip remained faithful. Luke just gives us this little detail some 20 years later. While he's in Caesarea, a prophet comes by named Agabus, who we've met earlier, Acts chapter 11. The prophet Agabus takes Paul's belt from him and binds his own feet and hands with the belt. Verse 11, he says, thus says the Holy Spirit, this is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. 
When we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. The Spirit is prompting Agabus to provide this message of what lies ahead. Danger in Jerusalem, and the Christians have the same conclusion in Caesarea than they did in Tyre. Don't go, Paul. Paul has a different conclusion. Verse 13. And Paul answered, What are you doing? Weeping and breaking my heart. For I am ready not only to be in prison, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, Paul was a stubborn kind of guy, wasn't he? We ceased and said, let the will of the Lord be done. Here, Paul provides them and us, many years later, a perspective check as Christians. Serving Christ involves suffering. It's not strange. It's normal. Friends, what are you doing? You're melting my heart down. Look, I'm ready to be imprisoned, even to die for the sake of Christ in Jerusalem. Serving Christ involves suffering. It's normal. Our Lord Jesus himself forecasted such danger. John 15, verse 20, they persecuted me they will persecute you. The Lord is helping helping us to have expectations that are realistic. Friends, this is incredibly challenging, yet incredibly helpful for us in our day and age. We all, to one degree or another, have bought into a false kind of Christianity. A Christianity that assumes comfort and convenience, that expects comfort and convenience. And when the heat comes, when suffering comes, we think something strange were happening to us. But the Apostle Peter says, don't think it's strange when the fiery trial comes upon you, but rejoice insofar as you're sharing the sufferings of your Lord. In fact, when we suffer, we're drawn near to the heart of Jesus who knew the epitome of suffering. We ought not to avoid it. I'm not saying we need to seek it out. Don't be sadistic. But when it does come, and it will, it's promised, know that it endears your heart to your Lord who knew it. We must allow the truth of God's word to remind us and to reinvigorate us to the task at hand. Because when we fall prey to this message, this false message of convenience and comfort, it leaves us impotent and weak as witnesses of the Lord. We must allow the truth of God's word to remind us and reinvigorate us to the work ahead. Well, Paul and company leave Caesarea. They head to Jerusalem, verse 17. When we had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. And on the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. These are the elders of the Jerusalem church. Verse 19, after greeting them, he related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. 
And when they heard it, they glorified God, and they said to him, You see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who've believed. They are zealous for the law, and they have been told about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to our customs. What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. So Paul meets with these elders of the church in Jerusalem, and the meeting is a mix. It's a mix of joy and concern. Joy and concern. They're joyful over the report of Paul, who's proclaimed the gospel among the Gentiles, and many have become to believe. They're joyful over that, genuinely joyful, but they're concerned because now Paul's in Jerusalem, and word is that he is dissuading Jewish Christians from following the law. Well, and here's where falsehood has now been propagated because Paul never encouraged Jewish Christians from voluntarily following parts of the Jewish law. He has, however, forbade them from requiring Gentiles to follow the Jewish law in order to be accepted. Those are two different things. If you're a Jewish Christian, it's, it's, Paul said it's okay to voluntary, voluntarily follow some of these customs that you've grown up in that you've been steeped in. But don't mandate them on Gentiles who've never followed them to say that you've got to become a Jew before you become a Christian. That's anti-gospel. That's what Paul was about. But it's been twisted, and this falsehood has been propagated, and it leads to the animosity towards Paul. So James and the elders devise this plan to protect Paul, or so they think it will. Verse 23 Paul, do therefore what we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow, that is a Nazarite vow, Numbers 6. Take these men and purify yourselves along with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads. Thus all will know that there is nothing in what you have been told, that what they have been told about you, but that you yourself also live in observance to the law. This is a Nazarite vow. It's part of the ceremonial law, Numbers chapter 6, verses 1 through 21. People were seeking God or expressing thanksgiving to God would undergo this Nazarite vow. They would abstain from wine, anything of the grape. They would shave their heads. It would last for a period of days. And again, it was an expression of seeking God, seeking his face, or giving thanks to God. Paul's already done this in Acts chapter 18, verse 18. He, he, he did practice these things. So this was some, not something new or something they were forcing on Paul. He would periodically do these customs, these They encourage him to do this as a way to kind of publicly profess before the Jews there in Jerusalem that, that he's not anti-law. Well, we find their plan does not have enough time to fully unfold because the, the heat and danger in Paul is immediate in Jerusalem once he arrives. So first we've seen danger forecasted. Secondly, we see danger realized. Danger realized. Let's look together at this account, verses 27 and following. When the seven days of the Nazarite vow were almost completed... The Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people 
and against the law and against this place. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. For they had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, with him in the city, and they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. These Jews who stir up the situation are likely from Ephesus. Paul had spent some three years in Ephesus, so they would have known him and recognized him readily. They've come to Jerusalem for the Feast of Pentecost, and immediately they recognize him. And they're operating out of falsehood. They say that Paul took Trophimus, this Greek friend from Ephesus, into the forbidden area of the temple, which he did not do. And an angry mob gathers, verse 30, then all the city was stirred up and the people ran together. They seized Paul, dragged him out of the temple, and at once they shut the gates. And as they were seeking to kill him, we'll pause there, Paul is in great danger. The hands of an angry mob are ready to tear him to pieces. And before he's torn apart, Luke tells us, verse 31, word came to the tribune of the cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. The tribune, this military officer who led a thousand soldiers, at once took his soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And when they saw the tribune and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Then the tribune came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. He inquired who he was and what he had done. Some in the crowd were shouting one thing, some another thing. And as he could not learn the facts because of the uproar, he ordered him to be brought into the barracks. And when he came to the steps, he was actually carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd. For the mob of people followed crying out, away with him, away with him. The soldiers literally have to huddle around Paul because of the ruthless crowd that wants to tear him apart. Danger is realized by Paul. He faces it head on. He knew what awaited him. The Spirit had prompted him and his Christian friends of what awaited him. And he goes with resolve, with faith, would not be dissuaded. Paul understands the risk and potential for physical harm in the mission of God. Do we understand the risk and the potential of physical harm for being a Christian and engaging in his mission? We must allow the truth of God's word to wash over us, to correct us, to refresh us, and to embolden us to engage Otherwise, we fall prey to silence and impotence in the mission of God, powerlessness. There is physical danger in going as a cross-cultural missionary and in sending cross-cultural missionaries, which is the business that we want to be about here at Beacon. Friend Susan serves in a difficult place. We just sent a team there. Dangers of sharing the gospel publicly. This is part and parcel of being a church and sending people. We need not be sadistic, but we need to be wise and have healthy expectations and to carry out the work boldly. Some of us may experience physical danger, all of us 
experience social danger. What do I mean by social danger? Friends, do you know what it is to put a relationship on the line for the sake of the gospel? You know, people talk about friendship evangelism. I think a healthy critique of friendship evangelism is it never moves beyond the friendship to the gospel. Why? Because we're afraid of the social danger of a relationship being on the line and perhaps getting awkward or ending, we fear. Are we willing to lovingly share the gospel with the people God places in our path, no matter the cost, because it's the most loving thing we can do to share the gospel with them? And though it might be uncomfortable, though it might lead to some awkwardness, are we willing to just share our lives? I was convicted by this in the last couple weeks. You know, a friend of mine shared, when we're hesitant to open up with our closer friends who might not be Christians about who we truly are, we're actually withholding pieces of who we are before them. And it doesn't help the relationship. Are you comfortable Letting your hair down spiritually before your non-Christian friends? Or do you worry that if you do that, some social capital is going to be lost? Trust Christ. Let your hair down spiritually. God will work in and through you. Some of us may face physical danger. All of us will face social danger. Ed Welch has written, written a very helpful book called When People Are Big and God is Small, Overcoming the Fear of Man. Proverbs chapter 29, verse 25, the fear of man lays a snare, but the one who trusts in the Lord is safe. Ask yourself this week, what power does the fear of man wield over my life? How is the fear of man dictating what I do in my life and hindering me from being the Christian that God desires me to be? The fear of man lays a snare, but the one who trusts in the Lord is safe. Ed Welch basically said, look, the antidote for the fear of man is a healthy fear of God. And that's not a fear of God like you're, you're cowering in the corner waiting for a lightning bolt to come down. It's a holy reverence of an all-powerful God. That's what the fear of God is. And the scriptures are filled with this reminder. Psalm 118, verse 6, The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Matthew chapter 10, verse 28, Jesus says, Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. That's a healthy corrective. Who are we to fear? Not man, but God Almighty. He is on our side. We need not fear. What can people do to us? Notice at the end here, verse 36, this angry mob cries out, away with him, away with him. If you've spent any time camped out in the Gospels, that should sound familiar. Do you know what they called out to Jesus? You know what the angry mob cried out to him? 
away with him, away with him. Give us Barabbas instead. Crucify him, crucify him. The same expression. Luke 23, verses 18 through 21. The mob all cried out together, away with this man, Jesus, and release to us Barabbas, a man who had been thrown into prison for an insurrection, started in the city for his murder. Pilate addressed them once again, desiring to release Jesus, but they kept shouting, crucify him, crucify him. What's happening to Paul here in Acts 21 is an echo of what happened to Jesus in Luke 23. Away with him, away with him. Kill him. Paul is following in the footsteps of his Lord. They persecuted me, and they will persecute you. Paul understood that. Do we understand that? And may we lean into Christ, who bore the danger and the persecution for us, that we might be freed from fear of it. Bore a greater danger the wrath of God that we deserve. Jesus bore it all on his shoulders and said, it is finished. We are free, free from fear, the fear of man, the fear of death. Do you fear death? We all have to come to grips with that. Do you fear dying? And I'm not saying like, in some ways I fear like not knowing all the, all the details, I mean, because the scriptures only share so much detail. So I, I'm, I'm somewhat curious about how that all goes down, but at the end of the day, I trust that my soul is safe, that nothing can separate me from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, my Lord, Romans 8. Do you fear death? If you're a Christian, you don't have to, because Christ bore it for you. You're inseparably united to him. No one, no one, nothing can snatch you from his hand. Walk forward in freedom. Serve Christ with a resolve and a boldness. And I'm preaching this to myself because week by week, there are times where I'm cowering when I shouldn't. We need Christ to embolden us. One of the ways that we remind ourselves and reinvigorate ourselves is by celebrating the Lord's Supper. Because it's in the Lord's Supper that we remind ourselves of the danger that Jesus endured for us, right? His body broken, his blood shed. He endured our punishment he shouldered the danger so that we could be freed from it. And so in a, mo in a moment, we're going to take the bread and the cup and we're going to celebrate as a way to affirm our faith. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, I just invite you to abstain from receiving the Lord's Supper. We're so glad you're here. But this part of the service is for those who've trusted in Christ. But we ask that in these moments, you would consider what the bread and the cup represent, Christ's body broken, his shed blood for you, that you might trust in him and be freed. I'll pray, and if you've not picked up your bread and, and cup, you can grab that, and then I'll lead you, lead us in a time of receiving that. Heavenly Father, prepare us now as we celebrate the Lord's Supper. God, make our hearts right with you. We do this, Lord, to affirm our faith, to unite with one another in our shared faith in Christ. We pray that you would just encourage us, reinvigorate us, embolden us to the work that lies ahead. Free us, Lord, from the fear of death.
Remind us of our inseparable union with you, Lord Jesus. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.